Welcome to the podcast, In and Through Exist, to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. My name's Tim. And my name's Marshall. Marshall. Yes. Last episode, we talked about the Bible as a book. We did. Because a lot of people want to say it's just like every other religion that has a book. Which isn't true. It's not true. So we talked about why it's unique. What are some things that stand about stand out about the Bible? Sure. Apart from other books. Uh, today we're going to talk about whether or not this book is reliable. Sure. The yeah. The main notion behind it is that people will want to argue, well, how do you even know that you have the right book? Mm. Right, this has been through so many people's hands. Mm. So many people have handled this thing. Right. How right. can we even know, even if we were to presume that the original was given to us by God? How could we even be sure of that today? Right, right. And that's a fair, I'd say that's a fair question to Mm -hmm. ask. A lot of the people who ask the question have already often kind of have already come to the conclusion in their own own minds that there is no way or it is not reliable or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. It's a fair question to ask at face value. And the good thing is there are answers. Right, right. And, and some, not not just sort of weak answers either. No. I, I think what happens, one of the things that I like about this episode in particular, there's going to be a lot of overlap from from last time, the, the last episode, sure. on, yeah. on why it's unique as a book and, and kind of how that book came to be, but but in more detail. Uh, I'm, I'm excited about this one because I think what's going to happen is there's going to be a lot of confidence built. And, and not just in a way that says... Uh, it's a tricky question. It may or may not have an answer. We got the answer. Don't know how I feel about it. Mm. Uh, but I, I think I think it's one of those things when you really take a, a second to think about it. You go, oh yeah, that was that was easy and and it's sound and right. I can I can get on with that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So let's let's start off by talking about origins. Let's talk about the Old Testament. Yeah, where does it come from? Well, it, like the New Testament, the Old Testament is written by a number of different authors, right? So we're not necessarily dealing with one book, although these the individual books are compiled into one. Right. Uh, essentially by the time of Christ, um, that's already kind of been happening. And, it, and it's a process that started a, a while before. The first kind of major part of the Old Testament is the Pentateuch. Mm-hmm. So... Penta just meaning five. So the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, um, the law, as it's often referred to, the Torah, as it's often referred to. It's got a lot of different names. Essentially, though, um, it is kind of the foundational document upon which the rest of the Old Testament is built off of mm-hmm. and and actually the New Testament as well. Right. and And not only... Do we see this already in place before we see Jesus come onto the scene? Mm-hmm. And 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 almost, if not entirely, gathered as a group of books mm-hmm. from the beginning. Yeah. Right? Even the segmentations of the Old Testament are in place. Oh, yeah. Jesus talks about things like the laws and the prophets. Right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So in the Jewish mind, you had the laws, the prophets, and the writings, which the writings mm-hmm. essentially are like the... 
things like Kings and Chronicles, the, right. the kind of the the compilation of the history outside of the law. But even if we just look at the the Pentateuch itself, um, it it is a beautiful text and a very um, very well written, very well thought out, like very organized text in and of itself. And for our, you know us as modern readers, we can kind of maybe miss out on some of that. But there there are things about the Law of Moses, those first five books, that are just uh, kind of mind-boggling when you think about it. So uh, I'm going to go into a bit of a Hebrew nerd thing here mm-hmm. on on something called chiasm. So chiasm is is a it's a type of Hebrew poetry where or writing in rather where the middle thing is the most important. So what you kind of do is you have you know you have point A, B, C, and then the big thing you're you're trying to say, and then you kind of have it in reverse order C, B, A. So what comes after the main thing kind of echoes what came before. Right. So it's it would be easier to show somebody on a whiteboard, but I mean chiasm C H I S so C H I A S M. You, you'll get if you Google it, you'll you'll get an idea of what I'm talking about. But in fact, what what a lot of scholars have noticed is that the Pentateuch, the Law of Moses is essentially the entire thing is built on a chiasm, which is wild when you think about it, because we've subdivided into the five books and we don't we don't necessarily recognize the the harmony that exists within it at first glance, but what you have is in the middle of those five books, you have the book of Leviticus, which, you know, is everyone's favorite book, too, mm-hmm. of course. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right, where it has all, like, the instructions about sacrifices and, and things like that. But at the very middle of the middle, so the, the very, thematically anyways, the middle of the middle book, Leviticus, if you get to the very middle of that, it all centers around the Day of Atonement. I read a book recently, um, which kind of illustrated that. And this isn't just like a one-off thing. This is something that like numerous biblical scholars have identified Mm -hmm. that the center, the centerpiece of the law of Moses, those first five books of the Bible is atonement. Right. And as new covenant Christians to recognize that is just amazing, Mm -hmm. right? That that is the centerpiece, that that is the thing that was, highlighted and illustrated when it was first written. Um, so there's there's things like that that just, you see these kind of, these these patterns, right? We, we, we call them types in in kind of biblical theology that, that point to other things. But this is this day of atonement where the sins of the people were placed on an innocent animal and, you know, the people were ceremonially clean, um, you know, and the high priest did this and all that, that that would be the centerpiece is just... It's just one example, one 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 of example of many, of kind of the beauty and consistency and structure that that we find in the Old Testament. Now, who wrote the Pentateuch? They are the books of Moses. They are. That's what they've been called forever. And what that means could be a couple of things. It could be a collection of books penned by Moses as he traveled with the Israelites, mm-hmm. right? He wrote them by hand while they were journeying. God delivered these to him and he, he penned them. Mm. Uh, one of the fascinating things that I think about 
when I consider this is that the Pentateuch ends with Moses going up onto the mountain. Right. To die. Right. <laughs> which means if Moses did write these by hand, <laughs> God was like, hey, grab your pen. I, I got, we're going to add to the story. And Moses is like, sure. And he's, he's like, all right, just hear me out. Okay. And Moses went up to the mountain. Oh, I'm going up on the mountain. That's cool. Uh, yeah. Good things happen when I'm, when we're up there together. Right. And he, wait a minute. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that, that's, that's are a- you sure? <laughs> we, let's talk about this one. So, so one, one theory is that when it says books of Moses, it means Moses penned them himself. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people read that to mean uh, the books about Moses. Right. Okay. Where Genesis comes in as a as a build up to right. why this Exodus and these people and all of this sort of thing, mm. there needs to be a background story. Right. And if Lewis would have written it, it would have started with Exodus, and the Genesis would have been written later <laughs> as the prequel, <laughs> so that uh, people understand where Exodus comes from. It's a Narnia reference. It's for a those Narnia who reference. Picking it up. Uh, so so that's that's a theory. Um, and, and then lastly, just those books that I, I, I guess that I have, a, I'm trying to think of the third one. There's, cause there's the written by him. Yep. There's written about his time, sort of like the time he's overseeing, but written very, oh, I, I remember now, but written by contemporaries okay. in the of time Moses. or people very quickly afterward. Right. So like once they get to the promised land, right. they right. write these books about Moses. Those are the, those are the three that I know of. Yeah. Yeah. Um so does it matter whether or not Moses penned them by hand? I think I think it I think it does. I I, I think Moses did mostly. Okay. Um I think the bit about him dying, I think like Joshua his protege finished it up right so like josh was around while moses was writing it and then cleaned up cleaned up the ending that that's my personal take on it Mm -hmm. um i think it matters a bit because i think it matters because in the face of so many kind of like critical textual theories that have kind of risen up to denounce the authenticity of it it's it was referred to although it doesn't although the text itself doesn't say Moses wrote all of this start mm-hmm. to finish. Um, and and I would even argue that he probably didn't write the bit about when he died. Mm-hmm. Um, that it was overwhelmingly Moses's input. Moses was the prophet of God. He was the guy, the spokesperson of the Almighty. We don't all often think of Moses as a prophet, but he was. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. the kind of the 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 yeah, he was the preeminent prophet you could even say of the old Testament. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you need in order for like the text to be the word of God, you do need somebody with that kind of like authority to be, to be putting it down. Um, yeah, I I would say if they are works commissioned by Moses, mm. that doesn't change that. Yeah. Right. If, if, if Moses is working with a group who are writing it in real time along with him, yeah. Um, I just, sure. just looking at the logistics of it right. seems like a reasonable thing that doesn't 
mm. bring about any kind of real change yeah. theologically. Yeah, for sure. I think I think the the real I think that view is fair. It's I I don't I disagree, but I but I think it's fine. We do the same with Paul. Sure. Yeah. Right. Because someone Paul else doesn't Paul doesn't write most of his epistles. Right. He dictates them. He dictates and them. Someone yeah. else writes them. Yeah. Yeah. Um. He he tells us that. Right. Yeah. For sure. So. Yeah. No. And that that could have been the case. I think the the real the 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 perspective that um I would like harshly disagree with is that it is was not one kind of consistent text that was put down, mm-hmm. but rather a compilation of multiple authors over time. Right. So one of the things that in in biblical scholarship that came up in the uh, late 1800s was something that's um, the formal name is called the document hypothesis, um, or some people will call it JEDP as an acronym. And it was came up. Um, the the guy who came up with it was a guy by the name Julius Wellhausen, who was German because. Every time there's a major issue with theology, it's always Germany, it seems, in the last that, few hundred years. Yeah, that liberal theology. It's school. just a thing, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. it comes up. So he he proposed the JEDP are, is an acronym for what he believed were four separate authors. And not even just necessarily four authors, but four eras of authorship, even. Right. Um, the J is for Yahwist. So when you read Yahweh, the E is Eloist, Eloist, so for Elohim, which is another Hebrew word for God. He had the uh, Deuteron- uh, Deuteronomic author and uh, the priestly author, so J-E-D-P. And, uh, and, and so he came up with this theory that uh, the Law of Moses was a compilation, like a copy and paste, like cutting out little bits and taping them together. Um, that occurred, you know, over the course of like 500 years. And that's what he, that's what he taught and believed. And he pointed to, you know, well, there's sometimes, sometimes they refer to God as Yahweh and sometimes they refer to him as Elohim. And so that was kind of, I mean, that's, I'm oversimplifying, oversimplifying his argument, but that's, that's kind of the root of it. Um, And also you have, you know, you have some different stylistic choices, Mm -hmm. you know, Genesis isn't written exactly the same way that Leviticus is. Um, and so, so this was a school of thought that actually became like hugely popular in right. the seminaries. In fact, they still, even, even at heritage, they teach it to us and the prof's like, I don't believe this, but you have to know it right. because it's so common. Like if you read any kind of liberal scholarship, they're going to reference this. Right. Right. So if you're reading a commentary on the book of Exodus by someone who doesn't actually believe the Bible is true, um, they are going to refer to oh, and this is probably the Yahwist or the Eloist or whatever. Now, modern scholarship has kind of like torpedoed this whole perspective. Um, there's actually no real consistent way. And not just cr- like conservative Christians, but conservative Jewish scholars who who like, they, they speak Hebrew, like they are Hebrew, mm-hmm. have kind of like looked at, looked at this argument, you know, over the, over the decades since it became so popular and really like, just kind of wrecked it. Because yeah, yeah, because things like stylistic shift. Yeah. You write differently when you're writing a paper for school than you do when you're writing a birthday card to a friend. Sure, right. Of course yeah. you do. Right. Everyone does that. Mm-hmm. And so to argue that the narrative mm-hmm. of Genesis and a legal expression, 
right. of Leviticus, although still a part of the narrative. Mm. It is just a different genre. Oh yeah, and and to like and to kind of like maybe zero in because Moses obviously isn't writing birthday cards. Like even for us as pastors, mm-hmm. right in our role, which is not the same as the Old Testament prophetic role, but there there are parallels. Um, you and I, like the way I write a sermon, is going to be different than the way I write. Uh, if I'm if I'm asked to like help write policy, church policy, yeah. right? Like so, both those things are valid uh, writing projects within my role, but I'm going to articulate things a certain way. My grammar is going to look a little different. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be a little bit more free in how I say things in a sermon than how I'm going to like put them down in. Um, in a document, you know, to add on to the policies and procedures that we have. And and all the more, uh, we we talked about that from the very beginning of the podcast, mm-hmm. right? That we take Sunday mornings seriously. Mm-hmm. We're not up there to entertain. I mean, that doesn't mean we don't tell a joke in a sermon sure, from now, sure. now and then. Uh, but, but the purpose isn't about being super casual and laid back and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It, it is a serious moment. It's a, right. it's a time of worship and gathering God's people before their Savior. Right. Um, and and the podcast is a teaching time. Right. And we made the conscious decision to say, no, let's be more laid back in the mm-hmm. podcast, mm-hmm. right? Um, why? Because it's, like you said, it's a different avenue of teaching. It's a, a different set of teaching Right, right. Even if it's a very similar audience, yeah, it would be like so. Th- this whole JDP thing, and then w- like even going back to the names of God thing, of the Yahwist versus the Eloist or whatever. Like, okay, if you took one of my sermons, if I'm talking about Jesus, right? Like, imagine somebody a thousand years from now or two thousand years from now gets a handle on my manuscript for a sermon, mm-hmm. and they're like, "Well, this was sermon was obviously written by multiple people because sometimes he refers to Jesus, and sometimes he refers to Christ, and sometimes he refers to Jesus Christ, and even one point says Jesus of Nazareth, so obviously there must be different authors putting right. this thing together. It's like, it's it's just wild. But what 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 causes this, like the root of this, and this, this is a, a problem that doesn't just exist with this, but exists with other parts of the Bible, even the New Testament as well when it comes to authorship, people trying to kind of pull it apart into pieces and try to kind of identify something other than what the generally accepted norm was, which was Moses Mm -hmm. wrote the law, Matthew wrote Matthew, John wrote John. Like these are things that people accepted. It's the, the modern sense of scholarship. People have to understand like when you do a PhD, what is typically expected of you in most contexts is that you are you are to come up with something new and novel, right? Mm-hmm. So you gotta you gotta add something to academia that's not already there, and so what that does is it pushes people towards a revisionist mindset. Right. It pushes people towards coming up with ideas out of left field because if they just say. Yeah, I believe the same thing about, you know, this, you know, if I'm studying this particular book and I'm just going to affirm what people have believed about this book since it was written for the last 2000 years, well, you can't get that's not a good PhD candidate mm-hmm. paper. So people are pushed by the system of the way that our our higher education works in the West to come up with these novel ideas that are out of left field. And Yeah, and and just as a practice of apologetics, in these kinds of 
discussions. It is not the responsibility of those who hold to the claim of the text or a traditional claim mm. to prove that claim. Mm. If it is broadly accepted and historically accepted, the burden of proof lies on the person challenging the claim. Mm. Yeah. Right? So so you don't get to come at it and just be like, oh, so you think John wrote John, huh? Prove it. Well, <laughs> lots of people that were there at the time. Right. Said John wrote this. Yeah. John said he wrote this, right? <laughs> yeah. And so if you want to prove otherwise, or if you want to go with another theory, you have to prove your theory. Right. Right? You have to prove that this longstanding evidence mm. is not hypothetically invalid, mm-hmm. but actually invalid. Yeah. And and that there is a markable better option. Right. And and I think one of the things where these these kind of arguments against the historically held opinion, like one of the things that where where it kind of falls apart is that what you have is different scholars coming up with various different opinions. Like they can't, like the people who mm-hmm. want to undermine the fact that John wrote John can't agree on who actually did and how it actually came about, right? Because they're just grasping at straws so much, so they're they're grasping at different straws and coming to different conclusions. Right. But there's no like universal consensus that denounces the historically held opinion. Right. It's it's just like it's just like shotgun blast, like a little bit over here, a little bit over there. Like it's it's just not it's not it's not it's not a tightly it's not a tightly held argument against what has been historically um, understood. Right. So uh, let me let me give a couple of specific examples mm. of how this plays out. Just take it as a, a I'm going to use Paul's writings specifically. Cool. But it, this is good for any writing because someone is contesting every book of the Bible. <laughs> right. That's just how it goes. Yeah. Right. Because they're trying to get a PhD. Right. <laughs> I, I have a book written by a guy, one man, who's talking about the works of Paul, right? And he discredits uh, Paul's second letter to Timothy because the language is so different, vastly different from other Pauline writings. For example, Romans. Hmm. Forgetting the fact that Paul's never been to Rome, he doesn't know this church. He heard about them, he's excited about them, he wants to make sure that they understand a couple basic tenets that if he was there, he would be talking to them about. And so he throws those things their way. Mm. Timothy is his best friend, and they have spent a lot of time together, traveling, ministry, prison, mm. Yeah. and Paul's about to die. And this is his farewell to his best friend. Yeah. Of course, the language is different, right? Right? Yeah, exactly. And so, and so he he discredits Second Timothy in that way, mm. and then he comes at it and and discredits. I think it's Galatians because it's so hyper Pauline that it's obvious <laughs> that someone is trying to sound like Paul, and they're just trying too hard, right? Right. <laughs> And and so his his point is to say, 
almost everything that Paul says in his other letters appear in this one letter. So he's this is obviously someone being a tryhard. Right. <laughs> you don't get both. You don't get it's not Paul because it sounds like Paul, and it's not Paul because it doesn't sound like Paul. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And so so that's that's where some of this stuff is coming from, right? Oh, they're yeah. they're just they're they're trying to work uh, they're trying to work in a smokescreen. The point mm-hmm. is not to bring answers. The mm-hmm. point is to create questions. Right. And, and and just one more example from a Pauline text. I have a book that's on one verse. The whole book is on one verse <laughs> okay. from First Timothy. And what they do is they present, I think, eight or nine different ways that verse could be interpreted okay. that aren't the natural reading of the verse, which okay. has been historically received as just the natural reading of it. Every chapter is one of these alternative readings. So they each get their own chapter because there's this huge fabricated background stories of what was going on in Ephesus and, and of various people that might hypothetically have been a part of the church and okay. and and how this verse could be flipped into these really rare and nuanced uses of the language. You know how like we have words today that that can that broadly mean a thing, but every right. once in a while it gets used in a really weird way. Sure. And they're like once or twice this word was used like this in all of antiquity. And so if that's if that's what's happening here, then we right. can flip this around. And if and if this kind of person was doing that kind of a thing, then what Paul's really trying to say is this. Okay. Right? In the end, they give no weight to any one reading. Right. They just leave it at we know it's not what it's what it naturally reads to be. Right. But we don't know what it is. <laughs> Any one of these nine yeah. is better for you than the natural reading that has been received all of this time. Right. Right? And and in that it is blatantly obvious mm-hmm. that there's not an answer mm-hmm. except we can't receive what the natural answer is. Well, and what it is, like, and I'm going to throw some heavy language on this, but what it really is is satanic. Because what did the enemy say? Did God really say? That's right. what that's what it is, right? right? Like, that's what it is. And the threats, yeah, and the biggest threats, people, Christians need to understand that the biggest threats to our faith, not that our, not that... Not that truth is threatened, but that a proper understanding of Scripture is constantly under attack. Um, it doesn't come from outside. It mm-hmm. comes from inside. It comes from those who at least would call themselves Christians and who work at seminaries and Bible colleges and write books that are on the shelves in a Christian bookstore. Mm-hmm. And just people just need to be aware of that, and they also need to be aware that it's satanic. So anyways, moving on. Yeah. <laughs> so historical consistency. Mm, yes. When it comes to the Pentateuch and others, because we can we can throw this again as a blanket over a lot of them. Sure, sure. The argument is always these things have been handled for so long by so many people. Mm-hmm. Surely there are changes, right? It's like telephone, surely. Tim. It's and a game of telephone. That stupid telephone <laughs> reference. 
So everyone wants to reference telephone and say it's just like the game of telephone. Remember yeah. you were a kid at a birthday party sitting in a circle or it was raining at recess and yeah. your teacher thought they don't want to play with a ball. They want to sit in their chairs longer and play this game. <laughs> and so you whisper in a person's ear what it is that the secret message is just to see how much it changes by the time it gets to the end. Right. The rules of the game are written to create dysfunction. Yeah. You talk to one person at a time. Yeah. You only say it once. You only say it once, and you whisper. (laughs) The purpose of the game is to fail. Right. That's what makes it fun. Right. Right. Otherwise, if you just said, okay, think of something to say, say it out loud, and we'll see if the person on your left knows what you said. Mm -hmm. But we'll just take our turns repeating it out loud, clockwise, starting with the person on your right. Right. And and if they get it right there in the end, we'll we'll be like, yay. (laughs) Because that's the more honest example of it. I I would put it to you like not even just saying it loud. It would be dude, it would be writing it down. Writing it down and handing it to them. Yeah. Yeah. And then and not only that, but each time it gets it gets written down, you 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 critically compare it to the, to the previous versions to make sure it matches. Right. And You'd have to be an idiot to not end up with the exact same thing that it started with. Right. Right. And also, also you're not chained to the person immediately before you. No. No. And their writings. You can compare everyone's writings. Sure. You can take the last five people to go ahead of you and be yeah. like, four of the five all say this. This one person spelled that differently. I'm going to go with the four. Right. That's what I heard. That's what they heard. We're yeah. going to go with that. There's so much. Of, I, I would I would liken it less, less like the game Telephone and more like this. Could you imagine just major stage? Mm. All right? Okay. Game seven, NHL finals. Look at the you. The Super Bowl. Super Bowl. Whatever it is you want it to be. And someone gets up to sing the national anthem and they get the words wrong. Oof. Right now, no one is going to say at what point in history <laughs> did the words to the national anthem change? Right, right. They will say all of society, this particular society, has memorized this song. Right, and you got it wrong, <laughs> and everyone knew that you got it wrong. Why? Because it was memorized. Yeah, yeah. and the Pentateuch was memorized. <laughs> they had this thing down. Right. Their biblical literacy was different than ours. It wasn't that a few people, these this sort of like ivory tower of people, sit there and they study and study and study, and everyone else is just sort of oblivious to what's going on. Mm. Common people were memorizing this thing. Huge amounts. It was of that. an expectation. Yeah. And if you got it wrong, the vast majority of everyone there is going to go, that's not right. Yep. Yeah. That, that was off. You, you need to think, it's actually this. Yeah. And then you throw back to the fact that there are hundreds of copies of this everywhere that people can just look at and go, oh, yeah, yeah, they're right. You got it wrong. <laughs> right. These comparisons are so juvenile. Mm-hmm. And yet, you will have otherwise respected scholars mm-hmm. throw them out and say, this has been so overhandled, surely... It's wrong. When the truth is, the fact that it's been so overhandled 
mm-hmm. proves that it's right. Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a mark in its favor. It is. It is. Yeah. So, just to give, I I found I found a bit of a breakdown of the expectations and requirements amongst those who were tasked with copying mm-hmm. things like the law of Moses. Right. So you, you know, you're a scribe working, you know, during the reign of Solomon, and your job is to copy the law. Right. Um, there's rules about what kind of skins you could use, um, because it was, they were originally written on animal skins. They had to be perfectly clean and new because mm-hmm. they didn't want any kind of smudging or whatever to potentially mess up what the letters looked like. So, you know, they, they, they were very, very particular about this. Um, there was a limit to how many lines you could have because they didn't want the writing getting too small and, and to a point where you couldn't clearly read read the script mm-hmm. um the ink had to be black it had to be made of a special a particular recipe so that it was you know was easy to read and would you know wouldn't fade um they had to verbalize each word as they were copying it so they'd actually say the word out loud as they were copying it to ensure that like i'm not you know mistakenly spelling this right because again something that was different about their culture than ours is their ability to memorize and vocalize things was way beyond ours. Mm-hmm. The people in the ancient world um, could just remember things um, so much better than we could. Yeah, so, it's a it's a basic allocation of resources, Yeah, right? I used to know people's phone numbers yeah. because I needed to. Right. I don't need to anymore, yeah. so I don't. Now yeah. I just remember passwords. Yeah. Um, they, there were some there were some rituals too for these scribes. Like after they wrote Yahweh, they had to like wash themselves every time mm-hmm. they wrote it. There are some passages that have the name Yahweh, which is our capital L O R D in our English translations, uh, a lot. Right. <laughs> so I, I imagine they probably like they didn't like do a full bath. Like they probably just had like a sponge and they're like, all right, I, okay. Yeah, some ceremonial. Some some ceremonial thing. But anyways, but I thought that was interesting. Um, it had to, their their text had to be reviewed within a month, and uh, and if there was like, you know, they, they'd get they, there was a, a minor allowance if there was like a minor error they could correct it, right? Like the the person reviewing it could correct it, but if there was more than one, they just got rid of the whole thing. Right. If it needed more than one edit, it's burn done. the whole thing. Yeah, just get rid of it. Um, they they would count the words and letters so they would know. They would know that like the middle word of this psalm is this word. And so they would also, after the, the editing, they would just make sure is the middle middle letter of the middle word the exact same, is it exactly where it should be? And mm-hmm. they'd use that as a, as a dividing line as well. Um, and they'd have to store these documents in special places where they couldn't be corrupted or, or stolen or whatever. So like they just went above and beyond. Mm-hmm. Um in, in their copying. This is this is at the Hebrew times. So this is not into the New This is the Old Testament tradition. Um, the New Testament scribes were, were also very diligent, of course. But like that is like that's how stuff was passed down. So when people are like, right. oh, well, we don't have the copy of Leviticus written by Moses. Well, like, of course we don't because things decay and deteriorate. Right. And they've been lost to time. But what we do have are we still have ancient versions and they've mm-hmm. been passed down through a very rigorous process. Right. Right? Yeah, and no one tries to throw Beowulf under the bus. 
and be like, what a waste of time reading Beowulf. You don't even, it's not even the original. <laughs> Everyone just shrugs their shoulders as of course it's not. Yeah, it's we, pieced together. From, we don't really have originals for any ancient text. And maybe I'm getting a little bit ahead. Maybe yeah, maybe a little further. yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll come we'll, we'll more talk. around to that. Yeah. Uh, although we need to fly, we're, we're going to end up making this four parts instead it's, of three. It is what it is. Uh, so, so that's the the part on some historical consistency and yeah. describable tradition. Yep. At some point, the Israelites fail in their covenant with God. Yep. And and it's at interesting. Multiple points, but at multiple points. <laughs> but yeah. there's a final straw. There is, there is. And it's really interesting all through Leviticus, uh, because because people talk about like this. We we talked about it even last episode how. People say, well, this is just Israel's national story. Right. And this self aggrandization of the people of God. Mm -hmm. But all through Leviticus, like the dirt is more important than the people. (laughs) I think I think R. C. Sproul R. C. Sproul is has this brilliant take. So there's the who it starts with a U, the guy who touches the ark when it's falling off the pole. Oh. And he um, dies. Um Uriah, it's uh, oh. Anyways, yeah, but I know the story. The I want to say Uzziah, but it, mm. I don't know. Anyway, yeah, you Google it while well, I'm telling I the story. Will. So, so R.C. Sproul and the Holiness of God is talking about this moment, and and how so many people really struggle with this. Mm. And Sproul's question is just to say, what makes you think that you're cleaner than the dirt? Right. The dirt has never actively rebelled against God. <laughs> right. It has always done what it was created to do. And so maybe it's better off in the dirt than it is in your hands. Yeah. And <laughs> it's Uzzah, by Uzzah. the way. Okay. Okay. Yeah, you can read this story uh, in either Second Samuel 6 or First Chronicles 13. And yeah, so because they had the poles, right? They had the poles. So you wouldn't actually touch the ark, right? Right. Yeah, the poles. And then when the oxen slipped, he tried to catch it. Yeah, so that's Sproul's take on it. Yeah. I think it's brilliant. That's hilarious. I so mean, it, yeah. There are there are a number of times they fail. Yep. The land matters mm-hmm. to God. It does. And so he tells them from the beginning, I'm kicking you out of the land if you do these things. And he does. They are exiled, right? When they are exiled, there are a number of different nations that come up and take them over and become world rulers mm-hmm. through this time. One of them is the Greeks. Yep. Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great. And we we didn't talk about this so much in the history podcast because it's pre-church. Yeah. Uh, one of the ways that Alexander saw the world was that the greatest thing that anyone could be was Greek. Oh, yeah. Right? And so when, when Alexander and his people would conquer a place, they didn't do like the Romans where they were like, maintain your culture, under Roman culture, and as long as it doesn't conflict, we're good. We've got a quiet agreement, yeah. right? Alexander would walk into a new place and be like, "Today's your lucky day, because you're Greek now. You're Greek now, <laughs> and you're going to speak Greek. Yeah, you're going to eat Greek. Yeah, you're going to worship our gods. You're just going to do our thing. And uh, this town is now called Alexandria. <laughs> they all are. He's got there's like there's like twenty cities named Alexandria. <laughs> I just love it. Like the ego on that guy right. is just legendary. The, just a quick tangent on his ego. Do it, do it. Laying on his deathbed, mm. they know he's not going to make it. Who takes over? We have this massive empire. Right. The entire known world is dependent 
on your leadership mm-hmm. who takes over from here and stops global chaos. Yeah. Just closes his eyes and dies. <laughs> Why? Because if he gives it to someone else and they take one more square inch of land, he's not the greatest ever. I know. So he just is like, no, I would prefer global chaos <laughs> than for someone to surpass me even for a moment. That what guy. A troll, man. That guy. I love it. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> anyway, the entire world start is speaking Greek. Mm-hmm. These guys are exiled. I. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of times, you, you start getting, even into the New Testament, people are like, well, but they are the Jews, so they probably still spoke Hebrew. No. They're speaking Greek, and and more and more, they're getting people who aren't able to read the scriptures, yeah. aren't able to memorize the scriptures. Yeah. It's the same, this is going to happen when, when Latin dies, and the church was using Latin so much. Mm-hmm. They didn't fix the problem, and eventually, not even the priests were able to understand what they were saying when they would stand up in front of people and quote the Latin text. Hocus pocus. Hocus pocus. (laughs) And so so they decide to fix this because the text matters, Mm -hmm. and they translate the Hebrew text into Greek. They do. And the story story of it is interesting. So the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament is known as the Septuagint. And the Septuagint is called the Septuagint because, according to tradition, there were 70 scholars that were involved in the work. And what they did is all 70 of these guys, or maybe 72, maybe it was actually 72, but anyways, uh, yeah, it was 72 because it was six from each mm-hmm. uh, of the 12 tribes, but they just kind of like, you know, rounded it to 70, I guess, so whatever. But they all, they all did their work, and they all compared it, and it was all perfectly identical. That's the legend. Mm-hmm. Probably not true, but what they did do is they they got a, like dozens of scribes who knew the Hebrew well and who knew Greek well to translate, and they use their collective work together to to provide the first translation mm-hmm. of the Bible, right? Right, the Septuagint, and it it's it became extremely important historically because of what's known as the diaspora people living all over the place right Right. so in egypt you think they were speaking egyptian they weren't they're speaking greek Mm -hmm. right in turkey they were speaking turkic languages they were speaking greek um even in the holy land they were speaking greek all over the place as you mentioned right so so the septuagint became kind of the authorized translation for jewish people who couldn't read and write hebrew which and it was the vast majority, actually. Right. Yeah, and it, it's also known as the LXX. Right. If you're reading and you, you come across the term, it, we'll say something like the LXX words it this way. Right. That is that is just another way of identifying the Septuagint. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this becomes the Old Testament scripture as known in the first century. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And so, so what we have then is not only do these people need to get the words right, they have to make a decision, what books are we going to translate? Right. Right? Yep. And so in this, we see not just a canonization, because that was already done, but we see an affirmation of that canon. Right. Right? As it's translated, they say, these are the books we're going to translate. Yeah, like two or three hundred years before Jesus. Right. So when we when we talk about the books of the Old Testament, they are, what we have are the same as in the Septuagint, mm-hmm. right? 
I I brought a couple of different Bibles. I should have brought a Septuagint, but they're the same in the Septuagint. Uh, they're the same in the text that the Jews would use today. Mm-hmm. Now, in, in both of these, they're organized a bit differently. They are. Some of the Psalms are in a different order. Mm-hmm. No theological matter to that. There's just a difference of order. Uh, you, you can end up with things like Kings and Chronicles can be numbered differently. Right, or they'll combine the two. Right, where you have like one, two, three, and four kings. Yeah. Uh, those kinds of things can happen, but the content mm-hmm. is identical. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so so it, it's not like there's a lot of space to play games with this thing. This is mm-hmm. a, a vastly public thing oh, yeah. that many people are doing and many people are overseeing because it matters so much to them. Oh, yeah. So, So this notion that there's just like this one guy in a closet doing a thing and how do we know that he didn't mess it up right that might speak more to our devotion to the scripture right. than to that's, uh the devotion of those people that's spicy but I like that we're a part of it yeah, right yeah, yeah. uh because because they are very much a part of this now when we see the new testament because this is this is where it can get a little bit tricky is the septuagint then the inspired word of god right Right, because they do have to make some decisions on on translation and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the New Testament authors quote the Septuagint. They do, right? Yeah. So the New Testament authors or are usually quote this. We'll say usually. Yeah, usually, usually. not 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 always. Uh, but they're not put off by right. the notion that this is a translation. Yeah. yeah. They understand the content is there. Yeah, the translation doesn't doesn't destroy. Mm-hmm. what's there right and it is tricky right like having having not that i'm a, a scholar in greek or hebrew but i've done my greek and <laughs> laboring painfully through hebrew right now um people always say either one or the other is easier mm-hmm. and uh greek was easier for me oh yeah 100 percent. yeah hebrew and, and a bunch of people are like oh no hebrew's a breeze like, hebrew's not a breeze um i think what it is is hebrew is a much more ambiguous language mm-hmm. um it's just like it's very free. <laughs> Hebrew is the hippie of languages, um, where Greek is not. Greek Greek is the accountant of languages. Um, so what what it means is when they translated from Hebrew to Greek, they had to go with a mean. They had to, they had to pick a meaning because mm-hmm. the Hebrew is like, well, this word it you know it captures all of these various meanings. And it's like, Greek is like, well, we have five words for every one of those five potential meanings, right? right. It's just a different, so it, it, it was, so there, there is some decisions that need to be made. And I mean, some scholars, they might be critical to some degree of what, dis, which decisions the Septuagint makes from the Hebrew, but overall it was widely accepted, regarded, quoted by New Testament authors. Mm-hmm. Like it was, it was good overall right 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 and and it's useful I, this even happened not long ago where you were preaching from a psalm mm. and the word angel or gods or <laughs> heavenly beings yeah right it could be any of these things Elohim. in in hebrew yeah it can because it can be vague right but they translate it into greek which is far more specific mm-hmm. right and you were like, it, it could be this, it could be this, it could be this. In general, it means this. Right. I think that's the right way to teach it. 
right? I wasn't well that Sunday. That's why you were stepping in. Yeah. Um, and I just sent you a screenshot of the Septuagint to say, <laughs> this is how the Septuagint translates it. Yeah, it's true. And that's how it's quoted later in the New it's Testament. True. Yeah, it's uh, true. The New Testament author gave interpretive weight to the Septuagint. Yep. Right? And so, in some ways, one helps inform the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so these are useful things. It, it can even be a check and balance, right? Mm. To help us work through those, those kinds of things and not a loss. Because... We still use the the Maseratic, the mm-hmm. Hebrew text, mm-hmm. for our Bibles today. We do, right? It, they weren't lost entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, there was an opportunity about a hundred years ago now mm-hmm. that the entire Judeo-Christian world could have come to an end. Yeah, if, if nothing else. It could have been thrown to the fringes, potentially. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because there was a discovery of some very, very ancient texts from the Qumran community Mm -hmm. that had been perfectly preserved. Yeah. Yeah. So... It, the story is actually a lot of fun. I think it's like just after World War II, like 46, 47, somewhere around there. And these like sh- Bedouin shepherd boys are just like chucking rocks as boys into do. Into caves? Because... Yeah, just because like, hey, can I get it into that hole? And they hear pottery smash. Mm-hmm. And which, which probably means they threw a couple more. <laughs> probably did. Yeah. Before realizing, hey, we should probably tell a grown-up. Um, when the grown-ups found out, it sparked off this this massive... Um, archaeological work that has persisted and is still continuing to this day, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so for now, what are we at? Like 70, 80 years or something? It's been 80, 80 plus years it's been going on? Something wild like that. Anyways, um, and yeah, and they found these caves filled with these scrolls that were stored in these jars. Mm-hmm. Um and they've come to be known as the, the Dead Sea Scrolls because this community is like right along the edge of, of the Dead Sea. Mm-hmm. Um, the community itself was like a sect of Judaism. They think they were probably a group called the Essenes. That's not, not everybody agrees with that, but potentially a group that John the Baptist might have even been associated with. Um, maybe, I mean, it's all speculation. Right. But these guys kind of lived out they were they were kind of they were kind of like the Amish of their day. Mm-hmm. They were kind of like society is so sinful, it's so broken, it's so tainted, you know, by all these Romans and all their stuff and whatnot. And Herod, and he's not even a real Jew because modernity is the end of the world. Yeah, so even then, yeah, even then, <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine? Anyway, so they lived out in these communities and. And they just, they spent a lot of time copying text. So not everything, not all the Dead Sea Scrolls are biblical texts. Some mm-hmm. of them are just like the rules for their community, which involved a lot of baths, uh, which, you know, water's in short supply out in the desert. So, I mean, it was obviously very important. So they, they, these guys bathed a lot, um, even by modern standards. Um, but yeah, so some of them are just like rules for the community. They've got certain like, uh, you've got commentaries on certain books of the Bible, but then you have actual copies of biblical books. Right. And most famously, Isaiah, mm-hmm. which is the second largest book of the Bible. Yeah. Uh, to find a book that size... 
that has been sealed away for that long. Yeah, over well over 2,000 years. And, and you're a proponent of this telephone nonsense. You've got to imagine that the liberal and secular community were licking their chops. Of course. And the conservative Christian community was holding its breath. Mm. These are translated, and it is the most... I don't know. You do you want to call it anticlimactic, or do you want to see it as like this climactic climax moment? Because it depends on your perspective, I guess. Yeah, I I, th- I I would say in some ways it's both. It's beautifully anticlimactic, right? Because because what they find is they're just like, yeah, it's the book of Isaiah. Yeah, it's essentially the same thing. There's literally nothing new here, right? Because what what modern translations had been working of off of were the copies that were contained within the Jewish communities mm-hmm. into the Middle Ages. So sometimes they were they were looking at, you know, they were using, you know, stuff from the 800s or 900s AD to write the Old Testament. And so there was this worry that, yeah, suddenly, well, if you actually go back a thousand years behind that, that it's going to be totally unrecognizable. And it's like, nah, it's like some spelling differences and that's it. <laughs> It's right. like minor stuff. Like it's it's the same book. Like it's the same message. It's the same thing, you know. And so, yeah, it was huge. It was a huge windfall for those who stand on the preservation of God's word. Right. And and I think the the question to the church is this: when you look at something like this and you think it's too good to be true, mm. that these words would be maintained. Mm. For and preserved for us yeah. for this long, with all these people throwing their speculations and their questions and their challenges, trying to create questions. I'm supposed to just sit here and go, no, no, it's the same, it's the same, and I don't have the original um, autographs. That's what an original copy would be called. Yep. I don't have the original autographs to prove it from, but you just want me to go. It's faithful. Mm. My question is is this, and th- this is where I think we work on that internal apologetic. Mm. The God who is capable of delivering his revealed word to mankind, is he not capable of preserving it? Yeah, totally. Totally. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. I would agree with that. All right. Well, we didn't get as far as we thought we were going to We got through do. the Old Testament. Yeah. and We you know thought what? we were going to do the Old and the New. Well, and maybe we'll do, next one we'll do New. Next one we'll do New. And then, and then we'll talk about the other things we want to talk about <laughs> in a fourth one. Who knows? This might be a four-part series. It's all guys. right, the Bible matters. It does. Of course, it does. It's the basis. It's the basis for our entire yeah. understanding of who God is and what He's done. All right. Well, thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, in cooperation with the Gospel Coalition of Canada, and is produced by Alex Walker. See you next time.